0: Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. This is found on page 888 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Gean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Selim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, as a pastor... One of the, my
1: favorite things to do, one of the joys I get to have is to do a lot of weddings. So over my years as a pastor, I've done a lot of weddings. And as a pastor, you're always at the rehearsal to help walk through the ceremony uh, and yeah, you know, just do the rehearsal for the wedding. And so that... Time though, in particular, that wedding rehearsal is always sort of a sneak preview into how the bride and the groom, how their wedding party—the the bridesmaids, the groomsmen—how do they how do they interact, and and what are they like? What is that group of friends like, and and family, and and how do they interact with the bride and groom? And I've been a part of weddings where I've had incredible wedding parties where they're they're just so clearly there because they just are excited about the couple, and they know that this weekend is all about celebrating that couple, and they just want to do all that they can to to make make that time just fantastic for them. I've also had wedding parties who have been anything but that, who have been distracting, who aren't paying attention, who are, are kind of whether whether they would say this or not, it's clear they're just there to have a good time for them. And this is just an excuse to come together and party. But we know on someone's wedding weekend, the focus is on the bride and the groom. And so as I was preparing for the sermon and reflecting on the wedding imagery that, that John uses in this passage, right, he says that when he's talking about Jesus and he says, I'm, I'm the friend of the groom, this wedding imagery. I couldn't help but think of one of the most uncomfortable episodes and one of the most uncomfortable TV shows of all time, which is The Office, and it makes me cringe even now. Take a look. And now the wedding has no highlights. Right? like You have to laugh because this is absurd right? That, that, that someone's boss would think that they are to be the highlight of the bride's wedding. But I share this clip because it's a stark contrast to how John the Baptist responds in this moment. Because I can, you can imagine John seeing Jesus' fame, his prominence growing and respond by saying, I was supposed to be the highlight and now the kingdom of God has no highlight. And you could see John responding in that way. But as we consider our own lives, do we follow Jesus in a way that is marked by the words of John the Baptist that that he must increase and I must decrease? Or do we live more functionally by the words of Michael's, God that I should have been the highlight? I think one of the key ways to tell how that dynamic is playing out in our lives is how do we respond when we lose the spotlight? How do we react when the spotlight moves off of us and on to someone else? Because, you know, we are all experts at putting the spotlight on ourselves. I love this cartoon from The New Yorker. I'll read the caption for you because it's small. But this, 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 this game show, Make It All About You. And the caption says, Contestants have 30 seconds, 280 characters, and an unfamiliar topic. Can you find a way to make it all about you? And, and we laugh because we know, like we see that, right, on the internet. We see that in, our, in lives of others. And if we're honest. Like, we, we all have those moments, right, where we're trying to turn that conversation back to, to my story. Well, that reminds me of a story I have to tell. Well, we want to make it about us. We all play that game show more than we would care to admit. And you know what? It robs us of so much joy when we do. But in this passage, John is going to show us a way to escape that trap, and to actually find joy in the process of enjoying another. So how do we do that? Well, we get a glimpse of it in John the Baptist's life here. Now, I'm just going to tell you right from the beginning, this is a confusing passage because we're in the Gospel of John. So there's a follower of Jesus who is named John, who wrote all this stuff down for us, and it's now known as the Gospel of John. But we're also talking about a story in that moment with a guy named John the Baptist. Now that's, he wasn't, that wasn't the denomination. He didn't go to a Baptist church. He was baptizing people. So John is a character, but John is also writing about John. So just know from now on, whenever I talk about John in this particular sermon, I mean the John the Baptist, he's out there baptizing people. Okay. Just we'll clear, th- clarify that this morning. So we're going to see in John the Baptist's life, how it is that you can escape this trap that robs us of so much joy. Okay. So the passage opens with Jesus and his disciples. They're leaving Jerusalem and going into John, uh, the writer. John, the writer, tells us he's going out into the Judean countryside. So it's almost like he, you know, he's in Kansas City, and now he's going out to you know more of a, a, a rural part of Jackson County. So Judea is kind of the region, Jerusalem's the city, and they're going out. Now Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a little bit now. He went, went there around the Passover time, and he cleared the temple. We looked at that story a few weeks ago where Jesus actually clears out these people who were buying and selling and trading in the temple courts so that other people can come in, especially those who are non-Jews, into that space. That's why he was there. Then we also got to watch him have a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is this theologian, he's this respected religious leader, and he's going to question Jesus and find out more about who he is. And, and Jesus says this stunning thing to Nicodemus, that you've actually got to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it at all. He's like, how can I go back inside my mom and be born again? Jesus is like, no, this is a whole new kind of life that you don't have that you need, that only can come from the Holy Spirit. So all that's taking place in Jerusalem. Now they leave Jerusalem, they're going out into the countryside Because there's a lot of water out there. And Jesus and his disciples are are baptizing people. They're dunking them into water as this kind of symbol of repentance, of turning away from from sin and death and all that, and and entering into this new kind of life. Now, John is going to tell us clearly in the next chapter that Jesus himself personally isn't baptizing people. He's not actually dunking people in the water. His disciples are doing that with him, he's not actually doing it himself. But there's also someone else in the same area who's doing this this ritual, this rite of baptism. And his name is is John, John the baptizer. Verse 23. And John the baptizer also was baptizing at Aenean near Silem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now the fact that Jesus is there baptizing also, this is a cause for concern for John's followers. Because they are worried about what's happening. And they come to John and they say, Rabbi, he, Jesus, who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And notice this, John, all are going over to him. I, I mean, in essence, they're saying, John, you were supposed to be the highlight. Now there's no highlight. They're going over to Jesus. This can't be right. Like, you, you, the spotlight's supposed to be on you, John. And the key question here is, how is John going to respond in this moment? How is John going to respond when the spotlight moves to someone else? Recently, I've been so captivated by Ken Burns' documentary on the life of Muhammad Ali, the boxer. I love Ken Burns' work, life goal to watch everything he's ever made. So whenever something new, Ken Burns comes out, I'm on it. So I've just been loving this new documentary on Muhammad Ali. And when Muhammad Ali defeated Sonny Liston in 1964 to become the heavyweight champion of the world, Ali was affirmed in what he had claimed all the way in that buildup for for years as he was training as a boxer that he was the greatest of all time. So, you know, if you look at kind of the history of that term, like that's pretty common right now. We we hear this language of the goat, the greatest of all time, particularly in sports. And that really traces back uh, to the time of Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time. So how does the one who is the greatest respond when the spotlight goes to someone else? Because Jesus actually tells us who was the greatest of all time, up to this point. Do you know that? And and it's not Abraham or Noah, it's not Daniel, it's not David, it's not Moses, it's not Mary, it's not Joseph. It's actually John the Baptist. That's how highly Jesus thinks of John the Baptist. In in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus' point is that up until the time of this new kingdom breaking in that I'm bringing, there hasn't been a greater prophet, leader, person than John the Baptist. I don't know if we often think about John in that way, but that's how Jesus describes him. Of women, born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist. So how will the greatest respond when someone greater arrives? Well, Listen to what John says. This is verse 27. He says this, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And John's point with that is, look, I've been given this calling for this particular time, this moment. This has been given to me. I didn't choose this. God has given this to me. Then verse 28, and you yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's saying, I'm not the Christ. I've never claimed that, and I've always been saying there's someone else coming. But you do not receive—oh, sorry, skipped over to the wrong paragraph— I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's where he introduces this metaphor of wedding. And the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The, the friend of the bridegroom, the, the best man, his whole point in being there is to rejoice in the bride and groom, not to steal the spotlight, This conversation with John and his disciples is basically John's followers saying, "John, Jesus is showing you up." And John saying, "That's great. It's his wedding, not mine. The wedding isn't about the best man. The wedding isn't about the best man." I still think is fascinating. Here is that this language of joy. Notice what John says here: "Rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice," and then he says it again. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's completely full and overflowing. Is the picture? This is the first place that the language of joy has come up in the Gospel of John. In this moment where John the Baptist is decreasing and Jesus is increasing, this is where we're introduced to the concept of joy in the Gospel, is in this moment. And here's the point. If you only write down one thing, I hope it's this. That when we become less, our joy becomes more. And when we become less, our joy becomes more. One pastor who was writing about this particular text put it this way, I thought this was so helpful, he says this, By human standards, John the Baptist was a man who was slowly becoming unimportant. The baptizer was losing his job, but his reaction was far from what one would expect. He says, He must increase and I must decrease. His joy was made full in seeing his disciples go to Jesus. He had fulfilled his calling, he had obeyed, and he found joy. He found joy. So friends, what if we've misunderstood our part in the story? What what if like a rowdy groomsman or a drama-dealing bridesmaid, we've actually stolen the spotlight, and it's making us miserable, not to mention everyone else around us? What if we've misunderstood our place in the story? But the question then becomes, how can we possibly find joy in becoming less? Because I think everything around us and culture and everything inside of us in our own hearts says that joy comes when people are paying attention to us, when we're getting affirmed, when we have the spotlight, when there's more likes and more followers and more influence and more subscriptions, when we're succeeding, that that equals more happiness. But John models a different way. And that's what the rest of our time what I want to focus on is what is this different way that John introduces to us? So let's take a closer look. You see, John's formula for joy is this, that him decreasing plus Jesus increasing equals maximum joy. That me decreasing, Jesus increasing equals maximum joy. Again, that language of joy is so rich here. It, it, there's literally this idea of the, this translated great joy. Is It's like rejoicing with joy. It's like joy upon joy. It's in the Old Testament something like holy of holies. It's a doubling. This is a, a kind of a, a Hebrew idiom idea that, that rejoicing with great joy, the maximum joy is here. My joy is complete. He models this different way. But here's the key insight before we go any further you have to have both of those in place, both you decreasing and Jesus increasing. Because if it's just one or the other, it, it doesn't work right. So if you only focus on you decreasing, that actually just turns into pity and turns the attention back on you, right? So if you're only ever saying, oh yeah, no, I'm not that great, and um, what kind of, oh, like things are hard, and you know, I'm just struggling. and whatever. So if it's only about you decreasing, that, that actually just turns the attention's still onto you. So it's, it's another way of sort of you being on the spotlight. On the other hand, though, and I think pastors in particular struggle with this, we can sort of say, okay, I want my life to be about Jesus increasing, but I want to increase along with him. And again, I think pastors in particular, we can be sort of almost want to ride Jesus' coattails. Like the way I'm going to gain influence and prominence is if I make Jesus increase. Because that will, if, if Jesus increases, then maybe my church will increase, and maybe I'll increase along side. I don't know that any of them would say that explicitly, but that's often how us pastors can live. That I want to make Jesus great so I can be great too. So it has to be both. Me decreasing and Jesus increasing to have maximum joy. Okay, so what are practices that will actually help us in this? We're gonna to get to that in a moment. But before we do, I wanna give you this illustration Links so helpful. So a theologian named JF Hacker, he just died a couple years ago. He's like ninety eight years old. He had lived and written, he's written more books than I've read, it feels like. Was at a school up in Canada, great theologian. And actually writing about the Holy Spirit, he gives this, this illustration I want to share with you about the difference between a, a, a floodlight and a spotlight. So he says this, he says, I remember walking into a church one winter evening to preach on the words, he shall glorify me, the, meaning this is Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's going to glorify Jesus. And seeing the building floodlit as I turned to the corner, and I realized this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just at the building on which the floodlights are trained. And so this perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Packer's point is that when you go to a beautiful building that's lit, you don't turn and like stare into the front. of Where's that light coming from? And look into it. You look at what the light is pointing to. The beauty of what it's illuminating. In the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus says this new life, this new birth that we experience is from the Holy Spirit. As Christians who have been made new, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. and One of the greatest ways that you can kind of tell that you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and coming to faith with Jesus. You just enjoy Jesus, and you enjoy seeing Jesus made much of. And you want to do that, because that's what the Spirit does, is shine a floodlight on Jesus. Our joy increases when people look away from us and look to Jesus. Jesus. Our goal isn't so much that people would remember, oh man, I just I love Bill, and every time I have a conversation, like he's just so great. But that they would walk away feeling like, yeah, I was so encouraged by that time. And I just always have a sense that when I'm with that person, that they just have a joy that points me to be a better version of myself, that points me to to look to Jesus for my hope. That it wasn't all about them. So, okay. I've said practice this. How do we actually go about cultivating this in our lives, though? I think there are three, three things we can see out of this passage that will help us in this. That we become less and our joy becomes more when, first of all, we increase our saving confidence in Jesus. When you increase your saving confidence in Jesus. And John the Baptist, he had this. He had this saving trust. He says it here. It's like, my whole purpose was to come to point the way to this person. He's where my hope is found. He's where my joy is found. He's, he's the point. And actually, the whole New Testament is written for this purpose that, that we would have a saving trust and confidence in Jesus. That we would come to know him, trust him, enjoy him, find life in him. That's why it's here. But there are so many other things that regularly compete for that functional place of confidence in our hope. And Tim Keller, a pastor of New York City, who I just uh, loved and so helped by, he, in a sermon he did on, on this whole idea of joy, he uses the illustration, which I thought was so helpful, of parents and why they tell their kids not to eat candy before a meal. Because right? if you eat candy right before a meal, it kind of gives you a sense of, an artificial sense of fullness, right? Like you, you get this quick sugar rush, you feel full, and then of course you don't eat your dinner. And then if you're a parent, you know this about an hour later, the kids are like, I'm so hungry because you didn't eat your dinner because you ate that candy and you felt full, but you weren't actually full. And then Keller goes on to say this. He says, things like sex, power, money, success, as well as favorable circumstances act like spiritual sugar. Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God and know I'm going to heaven, but they're actually basing, get this, they're actually basing their day-to-day joy on favorable circumstances. And when the circumstances change, it drives us to God because when the sugar disappears, we can get, when the candy gets taken away, we get to pursue the feast that our souls really crave. You see, joy increases when we increased our lived, saving confidence in Jesus. Not just when we look back to a prayer that we prayed one day, you know, when we were a kid, but when we actually are trusting Jesus for this moment right now in the midst of these circumstances and all that's going on. So one question just for reflection here is, where do you find yourself eating spiritual sugar that's keeping you from the, what your soul really craves? That place of true joy, What are the things that are kind of giving you that that quick hit, those favorable circumstances that are actually keeping you from the feast that your soul longs for? So that's the first thing. Increase your saving confidence in Jesus. Here's the second thing, the second practice, is to decrease your joy-stealing comparison. Work to decrease your joy-stealing comparison because the sure way to rob yourself of joy is to put yourself at the center and the the one of the ways that we do that is just by comparing ourselves to other people. Right? When we compare ourselves to others, our joy evaporates so quickly. And of course, there are mountains of evidence. I probably don't want to tell you this. Like you probably know this from lived experience, but social media is terrible at this, right? It is It is built around this, but it is terrible for us. So, But listen, listen to this recent uh, summary of research out of the uh, School of Health at the University of Sheffield in, in the United Kingdom. It says this, everyone's life will inevitably feel mundane in comparison to the highlight reel of other people's lives. And this may be delivering what Dr. Blackmore described as a series of microblows to our self-esteem, and yet we persist in consuming social media relentlessly. And they quote from an internal message board on Facebook in this report that came out in the Wall Street Journal, people use Instagram because it's a competition. And this is what Facebook, that, that owns Instagram, is saying, even in their own documents. That part of the reason people use this is it's a competition to compare, to post the next best photo, the, the best vacation, the party, whatever it is. But by comparing ourselves to others, we rob ourselves of the joy. But here's the thing, this propensity to compare ourselves to one another, this did not start with Instagram. It's been around a lot longer than that. In fact, when you read the story of the scriptures and you go back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, this is what the enemy, the evil one, does from the very beginning. He tries to get them to compare themselves to God. Wait, isn't God withholding something from you? Doesn't he have something that you should have too? Shouldn't you go ahead and take that on your own terms? Shouldn't you have the right to define good and bad on your own apart from him? Why is he holding out on you? And that comparison leads to the deception that sends it all spiraling into a mess. And then right out of that, you have Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons. And, and Abel brings this gift to God and God accepts it. And we don't, we're not even told why because it's not the point of the story. But Cain is jealous because his offering, is. he compares himself to his brother and it leads to the first murder in human history. And then later on in the book of Genesis, I'm not going to go through the whole Bible, I promise. We'll just stay in Genesis. <laughs> right? We could multiply examples. But at the end of Genesis, right, there's the story of Joseph who is loved by his father, and his other brothers are comparing themselves like, he, God doesn't love him, uh, us as much as he loves him. And, and it leads to them, well, they try to kill him. They almost reenact this moment with Cain and Abel, but then they end up just throwing him into a pit and selling him into slavery. And in fact, from a human perspective, he asks, why was Jesus crucified from just a human perspective. And the gospel writers are clear that part of it is out of envy of their religious leaders that he was crucified that they were jealous of Jesus. They were comparing their influence, their status to Jesus, and they saw his rising, and they're like, we have to kill this guy. He's becoming too popular. He's taking what is ours. Your friends, John the Baptist shows us a different way. He could have clung to his popularity and his influence and tried to keep his followers to himself, but he didn't. He knew, this isn't my wedding. I'm only the best man. I am not the groom. This is not my wedding. And he knew his joy came not in comparison, not in increasing himself, but in fulfilling his calling and enjoying the one who was gloriously greater than he was. So here's a a practical step you can take in this. To replace comparison with celebration. Replace comparison with celebration. And, and again, this is the, the battle from the garden on. When humans try to make themselves increase rather than enjoying and celebrating others, isolation, scarcity, competition, fear are always the result of that. And let me just tell you again, what, I'm just gonna be really honest about my, this is a struggle for me. This comparing myself to others. I think it's a comparison for all pastors or this is a struggle for all pastors, maybe uniquely, I don't know. Probably we all wrestle with this. Let me just tell you: wherever two or three pastors are gathered, <laughs> there are going to be three questions asked. How big is your church? To which the pastor will respond, are you, "Well, pre-COVID or post-COVID?" Because <laughs> our pre-COVID numbers were here, and you know people are starting to come back, but it's not quite where we were. But this is where we were. I mean, you laugh, but this is, this is what happens. Well, how big is your church? Well, here's the, we, our pre-COVID; we were here. Tell me, how's, how, like, what, what kind of the size of your budget? Like, how many people are on your staff? Okay. And then what about your buildings? Like, do you have, like, what's your facility like? And it instantly becomes this game of, of comparison and, and who has what and staff and budget size and all this. Like, it happens all the time. And part of that's so just get to know questions, right? It's not always an ill intent, but I guarantee you in every one of those conversations, there's a pastor sitting thinking, oh, shoot. And like, that, that, they're growing more than I am have a bigger budget, they have an extra space, whatever it might be. And I find that welling up in myself, even amongst our our own church. Like, if Gabe is telling me something, he's our downtown campus pastor, something great that's happening down there, I will often feel like a twinge of, oh man, I wish we were doing that. I wish we had that class. Or Nathan shares that, gosh, this is how many people showed up at Shawnee. It's like, this is what our month of month growth were or something like that. It's like, oh man, I wish we were growing that fast. And rather than being excited for that, I compare myself and I turn inward and I'm jealous. And so here's the practice I've been trying to do in those moments when I find that welling up in my own heart is to replace that comparison with celebration. So first thing I usually try to do if if I'm on it, as soon as I feel that welling up, what I do is I first just pause and thank God for the role that he's given me. I'm not called to be Gabe. I'm not called to be anybody else. I'm called to be me. This is the campus, this church, these people are my responsibility. So God, thank you for my calling. And then to celebrate what God is clearly doing somewhere else. Gabe, that's amazing. That class that you're doing on race and reconciliation justice, that sounds awesome. I hope we could do that someday at Brookside. That's incredible leadership. Read that Way that you're offering Spanish translation, so you can reach that population in Aletha. That's amazing. You're such a great leader. What a good shepherd. Way to go. So I encourage you this week to maybe reflect on who are you most excited, or excre- excuse me, that's not the right language. <laughs> who are you most likely to compare yourself to? Because we all have those people, right? It's other parents your student, other classmates, a boss, an employee, whatever it might be. We all have the, you, you'll figure it out. Just who are you likely to compare yourself to? And then how can you actively work to celebrate them? Maybe even go out of your way before you get to a moment where they're saying something or you're seeing something about them uh, on, on the internet or whatever that's causing you to compare yourself. Maybe just proactively write them a text, an email, a card, and just celebrate what they're doing. You're an incredible parent. I, I was watching how you were, were with your kids the other day, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm encouraged every time I see how well you parent your kids. Thanks for being such a great example. Hey, so and so, I, the way you led that meeting yesterday, and what you're doing with your team in this area of our company, and that's, that's phenomenal. You're doing such an incredible job. I'm so encouraged by that. Thanks for just being a great picture of what it is to lead well in our organization. And that begins to form you into the kind of person who's not always having their joy robbed by comparison. Because here's the thing, the more we understand about joy, we know that it is inherently connected to relationship. The joy is the experience of seeing someone else who's glad to see you, and you being glad to see them. And comparison destroys that. Because when you're envious of someone, you're comparing yourself to someone else, you are not as glad to see them. And just destroys joy. It robs, this can suck the life out of any family or school or organization or institution. So fast. So who are you tempted to compare yourself to? How can you celebrate them instead? Okay, one last thing here. We looked at increasing our saving confidence in Jesus. Looked at decreasing our sort of joy-stealing comparison. And the last thing here is increase your other-centered serving. Because John didn't just not compare himself to Jesus. He actually actively sent his followers to Jesus. He said, no, go to him. He's the whole reason I came was to point people to him. He knew his role and his calling was to serve another. And Andy Crouch talks about this in his outstanding book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And he's a popular speaker and he travels a lot. And so he, he talked about this practice that before he leaves his family to go to travel somewhere to speak, he always does the dishes. It's kind of like the last thing he does before he leaves the house to go to the airport. As just a practice to remind himself, like one, I'm I'm a human, I'm I'm just a basic human being. (laughs) I'm nothing special and I can serve by doing the dishes. So it's just a reminder of his humanity and also a way to actively serve his family Instead of using that time to go over his notes or his talk one more time, he says, I'm gonna set that aside and I'm just gonna, the last thing I do before I leave is I'm gonna serve. What are practices like that? And he just shows that example. What What are things like that that we can put into our place that just remind us of our humanity and shape us and form us in a way of serving others so that you can show up in these spaces and you can get out of the way and it doesn't have to be about you. I think this is a particular um, struggle at times for leaders because we know we've been put into places where we need to give direction and guidance, but we're also worried about losing that influence. And is there someone younger or smarter or more accomplished who's going to take over our influence? As leaders, we should be excited for that, that our success is when we're able to develop people who are able to lead, where we are able to fade, where we're able to hand that off to others. We want to train to become the kind of people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to show up differently in the spaces where we lead and work, and where you can get out of the way. And ultimately, friends, we'll wrap up with this. This isn't just something we learned from John. This is the pattern of Jesus, right who came from heaven, who was born as a vulnerable human, who died on a cross, who descended the dead. He went as low as you can go, but then he was raised to new life, also that he could redeem you and me. Here's the mind-blowing truth of the gospel is that at this wedding that John is talking about, we are the bride. That Jesus came to rescue us and to unite himself to us so that we could have his life and that we would never die. That he descended and he did it for the joy that was set before him, the author of Hebrews tells us. So let's, try to, let's, let's stop stealing the spotlight. Stop trying to be the highlight and enjoy being the floodlight. Enjoy receiving the joy that comes. In glorying in one who is gloriously greater than we are. Finding our satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. there are parts of us that are so afraid that if we really pointed others away from ourselves that we would end up alone and that we wouldn't have what we need. In our hearts that are in those places, would you speak the truth that Jesus is always with us? That he's adopted us as his children? And we will always have what we need. So as a result, we can give ourselves away and we don't need the spotlight anymore. Would you ease our fears and loosen our grip so that we would receive the joy that you can only give us when we point ourselves and others to you? We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us and enables us to do that.